Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week, we have exclusive interviews with your favorite BC student athletes, professors, alumni, and more. We're your hosts, Eamon O'Malley and Jack Bergamini. Today's exciting because we have a special guest, Yvonne Castaneda, a part-time faculty member at the Boston College School of Social Work, teaching basic skills in clinical social work and social welfare systems. Yvonne is the author of the recently published memoir, Pork Belly Tacos with a Side of Anxiety. It is currently listed as the 23rd bestseller in teen and young adult nonfiction on drugs and alcohol abuse. And the book is one of Yvonne's growth in overcoming perfectionism, ideals, and unhealthy relationship with food. Thank you for being with us today, Yvonne. Could you just give us a little more background about yourself and the book? Absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, a little background about myself. I was um, born in Los Angeles. My mom is Mexican and my dad is Cuban, so it's first generation American. Um, we lived in LA till I was like seven and then we moved to Miami and I actually grew up in Miami. I moved to Boston about 10, oh my God, 10 years ago. I can't believe it's been 10 years. So I moved to Boston 10 years ago, um, but was essentially raised in Miami, which is a completely uh, Latino environment. I don't know if you've ever been to Miami. Um, and so, you know, growing up in an immigrant family, certainly during the time that I was growing up and from the different generation, mental health was a thousand percent taboo. Um, there's still stigma, but back then it was even worse. And so I struggled a great deal with mental health challenges that were born from lots of different things that we, if you'd like, we can talk about, but, but I essentially had very specific experiences with mental health issues, with an eating disorder for about 20 years and with alcohol addiction and also exercise addiction. Um, and so when I started my master's at BC in 2016 to study social work, I realized like, oh my God, there's really, you know, I did a search on Amazon because I had thought about like writing this book and writing the story. Um, and I did a search and I honestly couldn't find very, if any books that are on eating disorders within like with a Latin X perspective. Um, or that speak to like very specific mental health issues within the Latinx community. Um, and so I decided that I really wanted to write the story. I mean, it wasn't the easiest thing in the world, but I just kind of felt like maybe there's a place for this story. Um, I know that growing up, I was a big reader and I read um, Nancy Drew, Judy Bloom, Beverly Cleary. I loved those books. But when I look back, I realized, well, I wasn't really exposed to anything written by somebody from like my culture. And I often wonder, like, I wonder what would have been different had I been exposed to like literature from the culture in which I was growing up. How was like the process writing the book? Because you said you thought you knew you wanted to write it, but was it different once you started writing it, like recounting all your past experiences or did you already have most of it in your mind about what you were going to write? Oh, I was on the struggle bus. I am not going to lie. <laughs> I mean, I started, I actually started writing it in 2013. Um, and it was super clunky. Um, like I started, I had just resigned from like a, a job in a, I was the general manager of a luxury health club in Boston. 
Um, and I just resigned and I would like, just had like some space to explore other avenues. And I started writing it and it was, I, it was just very clunky. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, I have the story. I know that I want to write it, but I'm really not sure what the message is. I don't, I'm not, I'm not clear on that. And so it kind of felt weird. And so I put it down. Like I would once in a while go back to it and then be like, well, I don't know. And then when I was in graduate school, that's when I really started to go back to it. Um, and I, and again, it was not easy because I was in school and I was working full time and had an internship and everything that goes with that. So it was like really hard. And so I kind of gathered some steam. And then in 2019, my father passed away and that just came, that brought everything to a screeching halt. Um, and so I maybe took six months off after he passed away because I just wasn't in a space to write. But interestingly enough, my father's passing was sort of like the, I don't know. I, I feel like I, when I got back to writing, it was a way for me to keep my father alive. It was weird, you know, because so much of the book deals with just my upbringing. Um, and so it was very cathartic. It was very therapeutic. And I also felt like I'd grown a lot just personally and had learned a great deal, certainly from a mental health perspective. And it gave me a little more perspective and insight into my own struggles. And it was in throughout this process that I really came to understand what is the message that I want to actually share. Because I knew that I wanted to write this book for young adults, you know, and I thought, what a responsibility, you know, like, I, I don't just want to put out some random book with a message that maybe I don't fully believe in. And it was very important to me that the message aligned with like my own personal values. I wanted to deliver a message of, of hope, I guess. Yeah, that's, that's really great. And it's such a, a prevalent kind of topic right now. I mean, I think everybody kind of deals with body image um, and, you know, mm. exercising at some point in their life. Um, as, yeah. Especially, as you said, young adults, I mean, um, like everybody's trying to look fit, um, you know, exercise a ton. Um, and that can be like a real struggle kind of dealing with that. So it's really great um, how you kind of um, combine like your personal experiences with that. Um, I know that was really um, kind of interesting to, to hear about. Um, and yeah, I guess like talking about um, growing up for you. Um, I mean, I'm, you mentioned like your family even would kind of give you a lot of support at some times and then also other times just kind of give you like conflicting advice. Um, like I think, and you said in your book, um, they tell you, you both, you're both too big and too skinny at, at like the same time. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> like a hundred percent. Yes. I mean, there was like, there was just like a lot going on, you know, like my mom, there's something about the Latino culture that a lot of, a lot of people just don't, don't know. Um, and that is simply that not every Latino culture is the same, you know, like Mexicans are absolutely, um, like a hundred percent different to Cubans to Dominicans, to Puerto Ricans, to Salvadorans. Like there's a different approach um, in every single culture. My mom, Mexican, very much so a passive, submissive, certainly from her generation, like the man rules the household and you don't complain and you don't disrespect authority ever. It doesn't matter if they said something that was so awful, you never disrespect anybody who is older than you. Um, my Cuban family, the family around whom I grew up in Miami, very different in terms of how they deliver their thoughts. And when I say that, ah, really open, very direct, 
they don't care if it hurts your feelings, but they're going to tell you straight up that you have gained weight. And that will be literally the first words out of their mouth. And so that's what I kind of like grew up with. It was like, you know, from my Cuban family, I was constantly being told that my appearance wasn't okay, whether that my hair or my body, but it was always very much so physical. And so from my mother, you know, I'm getting, don't say anything. Don't, don't talk back. Don't question. You just kind of have to like take it. And of course I'm getting these comments at a tender age, right? Like adolescence, which we know just stinks. You know, there's a whole lot going on in adolescence and you were already like self-conscious. And so my Cuban relatives would draw so much attention to like my appearance. Um, and mind you, I think that generations now, like young adults now and anybody in their 20s, it's just so much harder because you have the influence of social media. I didn't grow up with social media. Think, I don't even want to imagine what it would have been like. Probably would have been so much worse. Um, but I, I had my, my family constantly breathing down my neck about like my appearance. So I developed this idea that all of my worth was wrapped up in my physical and nothing to do with like the internal. So it was really, really hard. What would you say? Like, how would you, what advice would you be to kids going through this with their families? Cause obviously, you know, it's their family. They still love them, but, and it's just kind of, as you said, it was your culture. So is there a solution to this or is it more so like a gradual learning for families as a, like experience as a whole to understand that everyone's body's different? Oh my God, that is such a great question. I'm so glad you asked that. Like I, couldn't just work with like, I, I couldn't just say like to adolescents that they need to, that there's a solution and this is just how you navigate it. Right. Like I could offer like some advice, but I also recognize like, again, at 13, 14 years old, like your identity is everything, right. Like, and you're developing it. I think honestly, like the solution or a way to like move forward is, and this is a big reason why I wrote this book is I think that it's families. I think that it's parents that really need to understand that their comments, their behavior, their own relationship with food, their own relationship with their body is going to be seen by their child, right? So like if an adolescent is growing up in a household where, where mom is constantly talking about the caloric expenditure or, or how many calories are in a piece of cake or, you know, I really shouldn't eat this. It's, it, you know, it's, it, I'm going to gain weight and oh my God, I don't like my body. Um, all of that just lands right on, on a child and an adolescent. And like, there, again, there's a message. There's a, there's a consistent, a chronic message. So I think that a lot of work needs to be done on the parent side, you know, and, and just families together, not just like working with like an adolescent. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's really all really interesting. Um, and I know like, even like when you're kind of going into college, um, you like express a lot of uncertainty and I think maybe that you related to, um, kind of that conflict mm -hmm. with your, um, you know, just how others kind of perceived, um, what you're supposed to do, um, who are you, who are you supposed to be, even if that wasn't necessarily, um, mm -hmm. at the time. Um, so how is that kind of pro process kind of going into college um, and how did you kind of figure out like what you wanted to do and what your passions were? Yeah. Let me just say that I, and I say this 
I feel like I say this a lot and I say this to students. I think it's grossly unfair to expect a 17 year old or even a 22 year old to like have it figured out. Like there is just no way. It's so unfair. And also like, I think this idea that, you know, this is just the path that we have to go. We graduate from high school, we go to college, maybe we get a master's and like, this is just the past. I always think about that. And I think that's so limiting. Like if this is all really re- what the, what else could we do actually that is not involved, like just a four-year degree. I know for myself at 17, when I graduated in the throes of an eating, an eating disorder, um, I was certainly conflicted about going to college. I had gotten a partial music scholarship because I was a pianist and I did not want to study music. I was very firm with that. Like, uh, I don't know that I want to do that forever. And actually, I don't really know what I want to do forever, but that's the pressure, right? Like I got it in high school. I was surrounded by peers who were making decisions on the rest of their life. Um, And so there was like this, you know, you got to figure it out. So I went to Mexico and I was in Mexico for about six months simply because I just didn't know what I wanted to do. But I know that when I returned, I decided to study something that I liked, that I really didn't know much about. And that obviously was international relations. And I, you know, I I went to a public school and when I graduated from high school and I had what was considered a good education, but I couldn't tell you anything about like India or where Bulgaria was, anything like that. So I had this desire to really just learn about the rest of the world. And so I went with, this is what I really enjoy. I don't know what it's going to look like. And the problem with that is like, and I'm sure that you experience it as students, is that when you're in college, it's almost like you're not allowed to just be in college. You know, the next question out of someone's mouth is, so what are you going to do? Oh, you're mar- you know, your major is marketing. What are you going to do? <laughs> so now what are you going to do? It's like, it's a constant, no, what next? What next? Um, and so even though I enjoyed going to college and getting that degree in the back of my mind, obviously was this like, what the hell am I going to do? You know, I, I'm a child of immigrants who are not educated themselves. that can't really guide me on what next. And I certainly didn't know like what job was connected to international relations. So once again, when I graduated from college, I, you know, I was having anxiety attacks daily. You know, I couldn't agree more. I mean, like, I'm still pretty undecided on like what I want to do. And just, it seems like everyone's just constantly asking me. And like, I know other people who go through, obviously you did. And like, it just, it just, I think it's a big problem. Like you shouldn't have to know exactly what you want to do, especially in college. No. And, and you know what? Like when I, when I think about that on a very high level, like, I think, I think this ties into anxiety in such a profound way, right? Because certainly in like my clinical practice and working with clients of all ages, right? Anxiety, what I found is for so many people, anxiety is I don't, I'm scared of the future. Mm -hmm. And not only am I scared about what's going to happen, I'm scared that I'm not going to be okay in the future. But I'm, so I feel very anxious today. I'm struggling with anxiety. And that's because there's just so much pressure in every stage of your life to figure out the next step, right? So like it starts in high school, where are you going to college? And then you're in college and now what are you going to do? And if it's, you have a girlfriend or you have a partner, when are you going to get married? 
Mm-hmm. When are you, you going to buy a house? And now when are you going to have your first child? Like, oh my God. So I feel like we're not really taught to like be okay with where we are. Uh-huh. Would you say that, that like, yeah, that those, these type of like societal expectations in your experience, obviously with your eating disorder, was that like a big cause of the eating disorder and almost, you know, you're with your body image, like that uncertainty of what is like a, a good body in quotes, because, you know, everyone's body is different, but was that like, how, how did that impact you? Like in your body image? And do you st- still struggle with that today? Like as with people still have anxiety about, about their future, because you said you still don't know exactly what you what your entire life wants like should be or how it's going to pan out. Yeah, those are like great questions. So certainly I'll speak to the eating disorder and how it, it kind of, it, it evolved and it started um, issues with weight, right? I was in high school. I had kind of yo-yoed with weight. I'd lost weight, but then I was starting to gain a little bit and it freaked me out because I was really overweight until I was in the ninth grade. And so for me, like going back to being overweight signaled complete and utter danger. Like, what will it mean about me if I'm overweight again? I won't be liked. I won't fit in. It would just be the end of my world. Right. And so I was obsessed. When I say obsessed, I mean obsessed. I was constantly worried about my weight. Um, And so I developed an eating disorder. I developed bulimia. And initially the eating disorder was certainly like a mechanism for weight loss. I just wanted to be really skinny, right? I'm not even going to lie about it. Like, yeah, I, because for me back then, skinny was perfection was okay. As I got older and of course, like the, I continue with the eating disorder. It then became the coping that like the unhealthy coping tool that I used to manage or to deal with anxiety. And the anxiety for me was absolutely about the future. It was a lot of it was imposter syndrome. A lot of it was like a fear of not keeping up like with my counterparts. And like this idea that I had to have this like perfect dream job at a certain age. Like I felt like I had to be somewhere like by the time I was a certain age. And so certainly like in my twenties, right? Like mid twenties, late twenties, I'm looking around and I had like different jobs but I'm seeing other people making like a ton of money. And I'm thinking, oh my God, like I'm behind, like, what am I doing wrong? And, but at the same time, I had this other really deep rooted desire to make a contribution to like work in service and to help people. And those things for whatever reason, just, I didn't believe that they aligned, that there was a way, you know, like certainly like in my family, um, in my culture, my father, for as much as he raised me to be very independent, he also instilled in me, you need to get a good paying job that will give you benefits and a retirement plan. It's all about security and safety. You know, my parents came from poverty. And I, so I, I like understand that, but that's not what I wanted. I was like, I don't just want a job. I want to feel fulfilled. I want to feel happy. I, I want these things. And it was, it was just frowned upon. Like, no, you really just need to settle down, get a job. Yeah, I mean, that that's such a problem. problem. I mean, I see it all the time, um, you know, especially, I don't know if you're on LinkedIn. I mean, it seems like every college student is always posting their latest, you know, internship or, um, you know, whatever, oh. whatever it is. And um, I mean, it's, yeah. 
it's a really uh, prevalent problem now. Um, and obviously for you yeah. as well, you, your work as a so- social worker um, is so connected to kind of the experiences you had as a, as a kid. And it's really cool how you kind of relate them to your profession now and, and kind of carry over your personal experiences to try to like help others yeah. um, in need. Um, and I, I know you uh, specialize particularly uh, in underserved populations. Um, is there any kind of um, advice or any of your own experiences that you kind of bring um, to give help to uh, those in need or, or anything that you kind of um, kind of preach upon? I think like in terms of advice, not necessarily, but I would certainly say that I create a space for individuals, whether they are from like the Latino communities or actually a lot of immigrant communities, I certainly approach these situations with a culturally sensitive approach, meaning I am considering all of the cultural factors that may be at play to why somebody is struggling with anxiety or why somebody has depression. And I feel that that is helpful, right? Because what maybe there's something about the culture, this Latino culture that is getting in the way of this young lady being able to access like mental health support. So really it's more about just creating a space and allowing culture to be a part of the conversation. Um, And so, and also like, to be honest with you, like even outside of working with the underserved populations, even in working like say in a clinical practice with maybe somebody who is not um, from a marginalized population, like somebody who's in their mid twenties, right? And and grew up in a two parent household, but is struggling with the same things, imposter syndrome, um, anxiety about the future. What if I'm not enough? Because I think those themes are universal, right? These themes of like, I'm not doing a good enough job I'm not making enough money. Maybe I'm not pretty enough. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I'm not successful enough. Like those things are kind of universal. And so certainly when I work with individuals, I say like I create a space for them to show up where they are and, and, and allow them to like explore these issues openly. Do you see like a future that's better with body image? Because I think as of right now, it's probably the worst it's ever been. What like what can people like you do or just what can our society do to make it better? Because it's definitely not not at a good space right now. Mm, how much time do we have? Um, um, so <laughs> I will. You know what? I know you said you think it's at its worst, but I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. Like my generation, we were growing up brutal, straight up brutal, like the bullying that went on in elementary and middle school about people's weight. Um, it was really brutal. There was no sensitivity around just how, what we say to people. Um, I think, you know, I think probably the biggest, it's like, it's, it's kind of layered. Like I think the first thing is that we really need to be mindful of like, when we see somebody, what we say, right. Cause I, Again, even in my own family still, certainly on my Cuban side, and I laugh because I'm older now and I'm like, you know what, you are who you are. But like, even so, when I go home to visit family, the first words out of someone's mouth is like, oh my God, you look great. You know, you, you look like, you know, you're exercising, you've maintained, you're thin. Um, and I'm just kind of like, uh, you know, like, really, can you not just say hi? <laughs> like, how are you? How are you feeling? How you been? You know, 
Um, so I think like just for us to be very mindful that we don't need to draw attention constantly to somebody's appearance, to somebody's job, to somebody's education, to somebody's accomplishments. I guess it's, can we somehow like in our interactions really just focus on the internal space of each person? And like, can we focus on what a kind person you are? Can we focus on what a generous person you are or how you, you know, what, what you do for us, like how you brighten our lives. Does that, I know that sounds kind of like abstract, but there's just like so much attention on like material, tangible things. Like, my God, can we move away from that? Um, and then at the same time, you know, I think for me, something that I learned the hard way, obviously, was that for as much as I felt insulted and offended by comments that my family members made, I also recognize now that those two were opportunities for me to learn and to grow. Without them, I may not have like developed this kind of insight and perspective. And so for as much as it may hurt when somebody says something, it's also an opportunity. So if somebody says something that you find offensive or insulting or that just like really bothers you, say something in a, in a kind way, in a, Hey, can we have a discussion about this? Like this kind of landed me on me a little bit wrong. And let me tell you why, but let's have a conversation about it. Not let's attack each other. <laughs> Does that make sense? But like, I think every interaction with people, whether it rubs us wrong or not, it's like, it's just an opportunity for us to grow as humans. Yeah. That, I mean, that, those are all such great points. I mean, you, it's it's funny too sometimes because you you know some people will say things and not even realize you know they may have completely good intentions but um it may come yeah. off kind of differently just because of how they kind of deliver it I guess and I guess um for the book I mean I don't know if there's any kind of cultural significance behind this but or, or anything for your past but um what was the inspiration um for using pork belly tacos for um, <laughs> Um, or maybe readers who haven't um, gotten a chance to read it yet. Had to ask that question. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. So many people ask that question. I, the, oh my God, the original title was Lost and Found. And I hated it. Like, I remember I would look at like the first page of the book when I was writing and be like, ugh. And I just, you know, it's interesting. I was trying to combine my Mexican heritage and my Cuban heritage and I don't know I was just like marinating on it I guess like just trying to find something that brought the two together and I'm not kidding when I say that this came to me like at three o'clock in the morning when I was lying in bed and I just thought pork belly tacos like that was the first thing that floated into my head like mm, pork belly tacos and then I added like the anxiety oh like you know I'm very visual like I'm constantly have like some kind of cartoon playing in my head. So just the pork belly taco shut up. And then I just thought, oh yeah, I could see that like with a side of anxiety, like this is what I ordered and this is what I got. I'm half Cuban, half Mexican. And I came with a side of anxiety. Was your yeah. book, I mean, I saw just on the Amazon like review page that was it at all inspired by the house on mango street? Because I've read that book and like, it seems like I'm getting like similar vibes. I feel like hmm. the stories and I know she, the, the author, Sandra, I butchered that name. Cisneros, but, yeah. And yes. She <laughs> left the review on your book, like praising, praising it. So I just, if there's, is there any connection there? I mean, that's, that's an awesome, oh. we got a praise from. 
Oh, I was, she was the first endorsement to come through and I almost fainted. I thought the publisher was teasing me. Like, don't kick, don't mess with me like that. That's not cool. Um, But yes, absolutely love the house on Mango Street. I admire her so tremendously, like not just, not as a writer, but as a human. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, you know, she, during the time when she was writing, it was even harder Right. For somebody who was, you know, we either Latino, different culture, different race, like to get published really hard. Um, so so certainly she was at the top of my list of literary um, people in the literary world that I would love if they read my book and endorsed it. Mm-hmm. And so I gave a list to the publisher and said, I would love if these individuals read my book. So if you can reach out and they want a copy and they want to read it, that would be great. But I had no expectations. So of course, of course, when she came through with the endorsement, I just about died. I love her. Love that book. Yeah. Cause I think one of her messages in that book, it's like other voices like yourself to, you know, come out and, and tell their own story. So this is like a perfect example. Yeah. Yeah. Like we, we need to tell stories. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up reading. I grew up reading. I, it's interesting. Like when I reflect on what I've learned about humans, like I guess human behavior and about myself. Yeah. I learned a lot in college, right? Like facts and theories and all that boring stuff that usually you don't use anyway, but I learned a great deal in college, but I think I really have learned more from reading. Mm-hmm. And I mean like fiction not necessarily nonfiction, just reading stories. I love stories. I love telling them. I love listening to them. There's so much power in sharing our experiences. Yeah. I mean, exactly. As, as you said, I mean, kind of appealing to kind of greater audiences, um, you know, that storytelling approach is so interesting. I mean, everybody kind of wants to hear a personal experience rather than just kind of the facts. And I remember I actually read House on Mango Street, like my freshman year of high school, um, I think, I mean, your book could could serve so many, you know, high schoolers, even college students um, by having, you know, being in English classes, you know, just kind of talking about those experiences. Because um, in a lot of places, they're definitely being talked about a lot more, but um, there's always yeah. room to kind of improve in that area. So, yeah, but kind of as a, as a final question, um, are there any uh, kind of hopes that you you want to kind of give out for your book? Um and, and how do you hope your, your experiences will help others just in a general sense? I know you, you've um, kind mm. of a lot. Mm. My hope is, it's hmm, a great question. I mean, I think initially my hope was just that it would get published. And, and so like I far exceeded my expectations, like, yay, got published. Um, but beyond that, I mean, I think truly like my hope is that it gains enough traction that it continues to land in the hands of those who really like really need it you know and and certainly like the latin the latinx population i would love but i think just young adults in general and and families i want i i I think a dream or something that i wish would happen is for like a mom and a daughter or a mom and a son to read it together you know, because <clears throat> there's just so much in the book that I think parents may not consider about their behavior that really impacts their children, you know, and, and by no means is it like, was it like a slam on my parents? 
not even a little bit. Like it was more, hey, you know, I think I'm looking back and I'm realizing that the way that they approach things really impacted the way that I approach things. And, and maybe I understand why their approach is their approach. There's a lot of forgiveness and a lot of grace, you know, for people's experiences. So I think like just overall, I think my dream is for, for many families to be able to read it. Um, and a Netflix series would be great with Andy Garcia as my father. That would be amazing. <laughs> that, that would be pretty cool. Andy Garcia would be like a great father. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's pretty much. And, and like, in terms of like, you know, I think the message of the book, cause I've been asked this like several times, like, so what is like, what is the message? And I think <clears throat> really it's about, it's about, so much of it is really just about like the truth, like honoring, like what is true, like for yourself, like being perfectly honest with yourself, having forgiveness for yourself and, and also forgiving others for the way that they showed up in your life. You know, I, I recognize obviously as I got older, people didn't do things to me. They were just doing things and I was there. And I developed beliefs and behaviors and emotions. And so there's just a lot about, I guess, forgiveness and truth in this book. And I hope that people take that away and really consider their own experiences and maybe find points in the book that really resonate. Yeah, that's definitely um, a great message to just give to, give to everyone with this book. And I, I think we'll, we'll definitely both check it out because we're super, super interesting story now. And I hope a lot of other people do too also. Oh, thank you. Thank you. If I see you around campus and you have the book, I'll sign it for you. <laughs> Definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This was great. Oh my God. You are so welcome. I hope you have a great night and good luck with the rest of your semester. Yeah, thank you. definitely.